You know, the brain is a toaster oven, oven, rotisserie grill mix master, carpet cleaning device. It kind of has to do a little bit of everything. Dan Gilbert is a psychology professor at Harvard. He studies how people plan for the future. And so it's not surprising that the mistakes we make when we look at the present, the mistakes we make when we look backwards at the past, are very similar in form and kind to the mistakes we make when we try to look forward into the future. Today, Gilbert explains why we misconceive our tomorrows and misestimate our satisfactions. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly show that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Dan Gilbert says planning for the future can lead to a more purposeful and happy life, but trying to imagine what's ahead is difficult. The ability to think about future circumstances is uniquely human. Animals can't do it, and our ancestors couldn't either. It's a thought process that has arrived with evolution. So how can we get even better at it? Gilbert also delves into happiness. How do we measure it? And how do we discover how happy people are? Gilbert wrote the New York Times best-selling book, Stumbling on Happiness. In his work, and in this talk, he explains why we seem to know so little about the hearts and minds of the people we are about to become. Gilbert is interviewed by Gideon Litchfield. He's a senior editor at Quartz. Here's Litchfield. Your book, Stumbling on Happiness, is not actually about happiness. It's kind of about stumbling. Um, <laughs> and so if you'll allow me for a second to mischaracterize it, and then you can correct me. Sure. Um, it's about how we think about the future. And in particular, what you say there is that not only are we very bad at predicting and planning for the future and figuring out, predicting how it's going to work out, we're also very bad at predicting how we'll feel about how it works out. Uh, and therefore, you make the assertion that the main purpose or the main benefit that we get out of planning for the future is the feeling of being in control. It's not actually the outcome. Does that seem like a fair, a fair way to describe it? It's, n it's not entirely a mischaracterization. <laughs> I mean, so the first distinction you make is remarkably important. Of course people can't predict the future. We would all have invested in Microsoft in you know, 1981 and Apple in 1982. And of course people don't know what's going to happen, and that's not a mystery. What seemed mysterious to me, at least 15 years ago when I started studying this, was why we also didn't seem to know how we would feel about what happened if it did. So I may not know if I will get a promotion or break my leg, lose my eyesight, or have a child, but I don't know which of these things will happen, but I sure know which are the good ones and which are the bad ones. And as we began to study these things in the laboratory and survey research, as other scientists uh, went toward the same task, we were all discovering the same thing, which is people are really bad at predicting these things. To me, that seemed very odd. Somehow, I don't actually know what are the good things or the bad things, and so that's really what the book is about. Right. And if it's also possible to say this, you draw a lot of parallels in the book between how our perception works. And so it seems as if you're saying the brain is very easy to fool. There are lots of ways in which we manage right. to fool the brain with perceptual tricks, visual tricks, uh, memory, you know, memory lapses. We do experiments in which we make people think they remember thing, something one way and they actually remember it a different way, or they think they saw one thing and they actually saw a different thing. And so you sort of say there's a similar thing going on with future perception. Because the brain isn't actually uh, this perfect recorder of everything that we see around us in the world, but is actually weaving together our perception from some rather incomplete data, Yes. something similar happens with the way we think about the future well, that's and about the past. No, that's exactly right. I mean, imagining the future is, is one of the brain's newer tricks, but it uses old hardware and software to accomplish it. Right. And that's really how the brain accomplishes every next trick is by using what it already does. Well, the, 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 brain is a, uh, you know, the brain is a toaster oven, rotisserie grill mix master, carpet cleaning device. It kind of has to do a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. And so it's not surprising that the mistakes we make when we look at the present, the mistakes we make when we look backwards at the past, are very similar in form and kind to the mistakes we make when we try to look forward into the future. So you're quite right. Those parallels are there, and I, I try to draw them out. Right. So this, this you, you also talk about 
our ability to look in the future as one of the things that really, or perhaps the thing that most distinguishes human beings from, from other animals. Yeah. Um, but the way you're describing it now, this ability is kind of a bolt-on. It's something that we, we developed after we developed all the other stuff. Yeah. But it seems to me like, you know, one could ask, why haven't we evolved to be better at this? Well, it's, it's utterly a bolt-on, and that's not just a guess. I mean, we know uh, from, from the neurophysiology to the psychology that... Uh, no would be a strong word. There is every reason to believe that our ancestors, maybe as recently as three million years ago, couldn't do anything like we can do when we say, well, maybe next month I will, or I wonder what it'll be like next year if, that they couldn't think that far into the future. Uh, and we know that because the parts of the brain that allow us to do that are parts that weren't well-developed in our ancestors. Um, there's a line in Stumbling on a Happiness, and I think I meant it cheekily, and I said something like, the human being is the only animal that can think about the future. And of course, I've gotten nonstop <laughs> emails from uh, serious and non-serious people challenging that assertion. How do you know gorillas can't think about the future? And there's now some evidence that maybe, actually, of all the animals that might be able to think about the future, it looks like it might be birds, it might be crows. Um, so, but... I would stand by the assertion that no animal thinks about the future like we do. If they can look into the future at all, it's the very short-term future. So your question is, okay, so why aren't we better at this? Well, if I were Mother Nature, I'd say, you're rather ungrateful. <laughs> I mean, hundreds of millions of years of not being able to do it. Here we get this ability a couple of million years ago, and it's you know, it's still in R&D. It's still in beta testing, our ability to think in the far future. So we're moving along nicely. <laughs> is there any evidence that we are... Well, A, is there any evidence that we get better at it as we get older? And B, is there any evidence that we're getting better at it as a society or as a species? Well, so there's no doubt that our species is better at it than the species from which we came. So mm -hmm. yes, over evolutionary time, grand improvement. Uh, there is evidence that people get better at it as they age, but I think it's, it's trivially true that children have a very hard time imagining anything other than the now. That's one of the reasons why children are so uh, insistent on things now. I mean, how many of us have said to a child, we'll do that later, and you may as well have said we're not doing it to the child. Like, what do you mean later? Now! Because only now exists for them. So, of course, as we age, we get better at these sorts of things. As a society... Um, as a society, I think our failure isn't the ability to predict the future. So take, take a, a problem like uh, climate change. We're not having any trouble predicting what's going to happen. Right. We're having trouble gathering the will to do something about the oncoming train. We're going, should we get out of the tracks? I don't know. I like it on the tracks. Aren't the tracks pretty good? Maybe it'll change course before it hits us. But it's not really a matter of not being able to predict what will happen. Right. And that sort of happens, I mean, so that happens at the social level with a problem like climate change, and it happens at the individual level as well, right? Yep. We kind of, we know this is bad for us, but we're still really not very good at taking an action on that. That's Why? right. Well, so both things are true. Not all of the problems that we have in our lives are due to failure to predict. So everyone here knows that if you don't floss your teeth, the odds are fairly high you're going to lose them in your lifetime. That if you smoke, the odds are at least significantly increased uh, that you're going to get lung cancer. So it's not an inability to predict. It's the inability to bring yourself to do something about it now. The reason, of course, is that people are remarkably present biased in their preferences, right? Um, a, a dollar is worth so much more to me now than it is at any point in the future. Now, everybody knows that, of course, as things move into the future, they become less valuable to us. But what economists have discovered isn't just that they become less valuable. It's that the fall off is so fast and sharp. The decrease in value is almost immediate. The difference between the value of something to you today and something to you in a month is 90% of the decrease in that value over a thousand years. So it's really quite astonishing. It's, but why are we stuck in the present? Why can't we think our way out of the present? Why can't we will our way out of the present? Because animals were made to be in the present and we've just developed this new ability to think outside of it. It isn't surprising that we're not great at it, but that fact does have consequences. Right. And I think you talk in the book about a remedy for this, which you also say is very hard to accept. Yes, right. Well, so people will say, after they've become thoroughly marinated in the data and convinced that it's not easy to close your eyes and look into the future and say, how will I feel about that if it happens? And so then intelligent people say, 
Okay, so what should I do? It turns out there's a fairly reliable way to figure out how much you will like things in the future. And that's not to close your eyes, it's to open them and find people who are already living in the future that you're merely trying to imagine and probably imagining badly. Almost anything that you're asking about, what might happen to me, it's happening to somebody right now. You could actually just go see how happy other people are when they are in the thing that you're contemplating as a, you wanna know if you're gonna be happy as a lawyer? How happy are lawyers? You wanna know if you're gonna be happy if you come to the Aspen Institute? How happy are the people when they come to the Aspen Institute? This is kind of a no-brainer. Just use other people as surrogates, as proxies for yourself. And yet, people reject this method. They don't wanna do it. Why? Because I'm different. I'm different than other people. It doesn't matter if she likes being a lawyer. I want to know how I like being a lawyer. We're nothing like each other. Wrong. In almost every way that matters, people are almost emotionally identical. If a Martian looked down and knew everything there was to know about this man's wants and preferences and likes and dislikes, that Martian would know 90% of what there is to know about the human race. Right? Would you rather have a weekend in Paris or gallbladder surgery? <laughs> Would you rather be hit by a two-by-four or eat chocolate? Chocolate. The questions are endless that if he answers, everybody answers basically the same way. We have small, minor differences between what we like and dislike. But those are magnified to us. We think they're big. If he likes being a lawyer, will that mean I like being a lawyer? Basically, other people are a fairly good guide to how you will feel. I'm not saying they're a great guide, but it's... Um, it's like Winston Churchill's quote about uh, democracy is the worst form of government except for the others. Well, yes, um, you know, um, using other people as a proxy for yourself is a terrible way to figure out how you'll feel in the future, except for the other way of figuring out how you'll feel in the future, which is even more fraught with error. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Today, Harvard psychology professor Dan Gilbert on Misimagining the Future. He's interviewed by Gideon Litchfield, a senior editor of Quartz. If you like today's show, check out Originals, How Nonconformists Move the World. The world doesn't lack creative ideas, it lacks people to champion them. Author and psychology professor Adam Grant shares insights on how to speak up without getting silenced. Find the episode by searching Aspen Ideas to Go on iTunes. Now, back to today's show. Here's Gideon Litchfield. Because it seems to me like I could go up to lots of people and who I aspire to be and say, are you happy? Right. But I might distrust the answers they give me for a whole bunch of reasons, or I mean, aside from feeling uncomfortable about asking them. Right. <laughs> yes. Well, that's, and of course, this is an entirely different issue, which is, you know, how do you measure happiness? Uh, how do scientists measure it? How could you? If you were following my advice now and you wanted to find out how happy lawyers are or people who move to Alabama or people eat cotton candy, how might you find out how happy people are? Well, science offers you a number of ways. Uh, from the extremely expensive, we could do magnetic resonance imaging on your brain and see, I don't know if Richie Davidson is here, but we could see asymmetries and blood flow between the le left and right parts, and that would give us an indication of whether you're experiencing positive emotions. We can do electromyography and look at how your facial muscles move. We can do all sorts of fancy things, or we could say, how are you feeling? It turns out that the answers are so highly correlated that you'd basically have to be the federal government to want to spend $15,000 doing the brain scan instead of a penny going, how you doing, and marking it down on a scale. Right. You know, people aren't good at telling you what makes them happy. They're not good at remembering how happy they were. They're terrible at predicting how happy they'll be. But one question they can answer reliably is, in general, on a scale from really bad to really good, where are you right now? Mm -hmm. How are you is the world's most popular question in all languages for a reason. If it stumped people, <laughs> you know, we'd all be like, why does he keep asking me how I am? How should I know that? <laughs> we know. But isn't there a certain... So the question, I guess, is, is there a... Is, is that self-reporting reliable over time? I mean, we're, when we had the, your session, the session that you were moderating earlier and people were talking about surveys that show that people are, you know, happiness in marriage is declining or happiness and various forms of happiness are going up or going down. How do we know that some kind of social norm isn't changing over time that dictates 
whether, uh, you know, what level of feeling I have to say to, to say I'm happy. You're asking a great question. So how do I compare the reports of one person to the reports of another? And especially if they're separated by cultures and separated by centuries, mm -hmm. the problem you're pointing to is real and it's also insurmountable. So if it bothers you enough, stop doing science on happiness, <laughs> just go back and read Shakespeare. He had a lot of good things to say about it. And that's all the authority you're going to get. But if you're scientists, we're just used to working with crappy tools. Like, you know, we wanted to understand the stars and we didn't have great telescopes, so we did our best. And then we developed better ones. So we will develop better and better tools to measure people's happiness. But in the meantime, we have this thing that's like a, like a jello, a yardstick made of jello. You know, it's kind of reliable. It does a decent job. You can tell the really big things from the really small things. But the difference between something that measures four inches and 4.1, that probably wasn't a reliable difference. Turns out you can do a lot of decent science with a yardstick made of jello. So, yes, I'd like a better measure, but I'd rather have a bad but real measure of something than the words of every poet and every pundit that have ever lived. At least that's how I feel as a data hound. So this brings me to the question of measures like gross national happiness, right. um, where governments are now trying to move, ahead, move away from plain economic indicators that measure the well-being of a population and, and say, all right, what is it that actually makes people feel good and right. how can that affect our policies? So what is a useful way to measure things like that? Well, the way to measure it, of course, isn't all that interesting. You, you mainly measure it through questionnaires. Mm -hmm. And, you know, enough people have done this that we have a pretty good sense of what kinds of questions to ask what people on what days and what order to get a, you know, jello yardstick rough estimate of how they're feeling. I think the more interesting question is, should we measure it right. as best we can? Um, you know, you ask most economists about gross national happiness, you know, their eyebrows go up, their eyes roll, like, why would you care about that? But I think the better question is, why do we care about gross domestic product? Why should we care about that? You guys have been measuring that forever. Can you explain to me why we care? And they can explain. But the reason is, it's a nice correlate of human happiness. I mean, if when GDP went up, everybody got less happy, we'd be working to reduce it, right? It's really just a proxy for the thing we care about as a society. I think all of our social policies are directed towards making people happier in general. So it doesn't seem like a, doesn't seem like a big stretch to say, ought we measure the thing we're trying to maximize with everything we do as a society just to see if maybe we might be doing it better? Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> And this raises an interesting ethical question, though, which we, yeah. we talked about when I was talking to you before the session, which is, let's say that you had a measure of gross national happiness, and it told you, um, or you had ways to compare happiness in different countries, and it told you that countries with more income inequality turned out to be happier, right. or countries with less social mobility. Let's say, I mean, uh, right. let's say not slavery, but let's say 19th century England. All right, there was the England of Dickens and there were lots of, you know, but I would argue that maybe in 19th century England, people knew their place in society. It was well-ordered. It was well-run. There was a sense of cohesion. Maybe if we were able to go back in time and do that, which obviously we can't, but if there were a society like that today, we might find that that were happier. And if so, how would that interact with our ideas about what a society should be? It, this is a very tough question, and I'll, I'll try to be provocative because I think the boring answer is, you know, if we found that social inequality increased people's happiness, we should just simply distrust the data and do what we think is right, which is to lower social inequality. Right. Well, if you say that, that's fine, but just forget about science. You don't need it. You never needed the data in the first place if you were only going to respect them when they confirmed what you already thought, Right. My view is different. If you, if you could demonstrate to me that an indicator, a measure, was really very good, and you could demonstrate to me that some aspect of social organization, say, increased inequality, uh, made people happier, I'd be for it. And now you may say, wait a minute, how can you be for it? Well, you know, 150 years ago, if you'd said to people, we've got some data indicating that if women are given right to vote and own property and are treated like men. It makes people happier. Most well-meaning people and most scientists would have said, well, that's nonsense. You just can't believe those data. And even if it were true, it's just not the right thing to do. I think you've got to go whole, whole hog into this. If you care about measuring human happiness, then sometimes it's going to give us answers that don't sit very nicely with what we already believe. In our last session, I think we heard one of them, which is, the data are unequivocally clear that children do not increase happiness. Now, a lot of us don't want to hear that. Okay, then don't listen. But 
Oh, sorry. <laughs> Would you like to share? <laughs> but I think, you know, I, I don't think you can say, I loved the data showing that marriage makes people happy. I hate the data on children, so I just believe marriage and children make you happy. You, you can't say I trust some data and not others if they're all collected equally well. Right. Um, I, so I'm going to pivot slightly now. There was an f- interesting and slightly strange conversation that I had not long ago with someone who told me that he has a, an intake of students every year. Uh, and I, I think the course is something to a technology-related course of some kind. And he said that every year he asks his intake of students the simple question, do you think you're going to die? And in his latest intake, for the first time, more than half of them said no. <laughs> Meaning... <laughs> Meaning that they actually believe that in their lifetimes, either the technology will be developed for uploading their minds into some kind of substrate, or possibly that some kind of immortality cure will be discovered. Although I think that was less likely. I think it was more about uploading. Or that at the very least, if it isn't discovered in their lifetimes, they will be cryonically frozen and revived at such time as it's possible to upload their minds. So that raises the prospect of immortality and about thinking about your future as an immortal being. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on <laughs> how well will we be able to think about our futures, given how, how much difficulty we have now, how, much, how well will we be able to think about our futures and about what would maximize our lifetime potential if we sincerely believed that we were going to, be, to exist forever? Could you repeat the question? <laughs> <laughs> wow. After 10 years of being interviewed about this book, I thought there were no questions I hadn't heard. Do you want me to ask it again? <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm just teasing you. That, that's uh, extraordinarily imaginative. Well, um, I, I have never thought about uh, what kind of psychological conundrum would present itself to us if we were uh, immortal or even, uh, even if life were extended by thousands of years and we had to think across greater um, stretches of time. But I don't think it's a bad guess to, as- to assume that nothing much would change. We have trouble planning for the lives we have now. We have trouble planning for 10 years. Mm. I think if you give people an extra thousand, it doesn't increase their ability to plan. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little hard to imagine. So I, I would suspect it would be yet another case in which modern science has given us an opportunity for which our brain was just never evolved. And the question is whether we can adapt real quick mm. to at least do a pretty good job with it. Well, why did it stop us planning altogether? Because we'll always say, well, I'll get around to it Well, wait, 500 wait. years from now. You know, no, now we got to get into the comic book question of, does immortality mean like if I shoot you, the bullet bounces off? I assume no, what you meant by that was, was an extraordinarily yeah, long lifespan that could be ended by a machete. Right, yeah, or so, by unplugging the machine in this Yeah, case. or by yes. unplugging the machine. Uh, yeah, so it's not a guarantee of living forever. Yeah. There is actually, no. uh, tangentially, there is actually research suggesting that if we did not have biological death, the, the average lifespan would still be about 5,000 years because okay. accidents would eventually kill us. So I guess I'm not quite following the logic of if life were extraordinarily long, wouldn't we not have to plan? I mean, I thought long and hard about marrying this beautiful woman. If I made a mistake, it's like 40 years down the drain, right? <laughs> This was 5,000-year commitment? <laughs> it would be a bigger mistake to make the wrong choice. So I don't quite see how we get off the hook of planning our lives when they go on even longer. If anything, it's well, even more troubling, right? Presumably, we'd evolve a very different idea of marriage, which, uh, may, which maybe we are already. I mean, uh, yeah, right. I'm going to 100-year contracts. It's interesting. Dan Gilbert is a psychology professor at Harvard and wrote the best-selling book, Stumbling on Happiness. He's joined by Quartz editor Gideon Litchfield. Their discussion was held at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. You can find additional talks with Dan Gilbert, including The History of Happiness and The Psychology of Happiness, on the Aspen Ideas Festival website. That's aspenideas.org. Here's Gideon Litchfield. I'm going to try and throw another question at you, which you may not have been asked before, and okay. I'm not sure if the question will come out right. But So one of the other thing, technologies that people talk about happening that I'm not convinced will happen, aside from brain uploading, 
is genuine artificial intelligence. Now, I, you know, it's a, it's a big debate as to whether that's even possible. But let's imagine that there were a machine that were intelligent and self-aware. Presumably, this machine would be much better than us at remembering its past mental states, calculating the future mental states. Mm -hmm. If such a machine could even have an idea of happiness, presumably it would have a very different attitude to what, to how to maximize its future happiness to what we do. Then there's a question. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Actually, so, you're right. There isn't a question. Yes, maybe I don't know. Is yeah. that, does that? Well, uh, I guess what they, I guess the yeah. question is: I mean, how much of this? So it feels as if so much of our very notion of what it means to be happy and how we think about making ourselves happier is contingent on the very imperfection of our perceptions and senses. In other words, we have to be able to fool ourselves about our unhappiness and happiness in order to even think about how to make ourselves happier. Well, I mean, maybe what you're getting at in, in a coming from kind of from the from side, maybe the, like thing, this. maybe the thing you're getting at is the question of whether perfection in the elimination of the kinds of imperfections that I study, would it be a good thing or would it be a bad thing? That's a, that would be a nice, I, sensible I, version so of that Maybe question. that's a, yes. a succinct way <laughs> of getting at it, you know, sans robots. Um, I don't know. I mean, part of me says, look, these are the errors that cloud your vision as you drive toward the future. Isn't it like always better to have the windshield be clear? To be able to have a better view of how things will come out and make better choices about which life you do want to lead or how you should treat other people? How could that ever be bad? And then someone will reply, they'll say, you know, if you knew, for example, that almost everybody who loses a spouse gets over it pretty well. You wouldn't work very hard on your marriage. And if you knew that people who lose children go on to live, by and large, happy, productive lives, you would let your kids play on the highway. And it's really good to have these illusions about how you would feel in the future because they make you do the right thing in the present. Maybe, maybe there's some functional aspect to these kinds of mistakes, but I tend to come down on, on the first side. That, that we are going to live longer and longer lives. Sorry, I'm sounding like the Prudential commercial. But we are going to live longer and longer lives for which we really need to make good plans. I'm willing to take the risk that if human beings became extremely good at planning over long periods of time, the world would get worse. I don't think it's going to happen. I'm willing to put my money that it wouldn't happen. That it wouldn't. Let, let's at least wouldn't. take the chance. I mean, we've had millennia of crappy planning. Mm -hmm. So let's do an experiment and see what happens when we're all really good at it. But you said you think the world would get worse if we were all really good at planning. No, no, no. I, I am willing to bet against the proposition oh, okay. that it would get worse. Right. Um, on that subject of planning as well, I think I saw some, something recently suggesting that as our concept of, as our lives get longer and our concept of retirement changes, we, look, we become worse at planning for retirement because we don't know what we're planning for. In other words, there was the idea that you work till 60, 65. Uh, maybe you live another 10, 20 years after that, you have a pretty good idea of what that is going to entail. You also have, a, there was a certain social expectation of what people do when they're retired. Right. But this is now changing. We're living longer lives. Our work, at, you know, for a lot of people, work is becoming a more amorphous thing. They don't want to stop working altogether. They want to like, continue some kind of productive activity right. after they retire. And as a consequence, there's this risk that actually our ability to plan our savings and uh, our circumstances for, for that time is going to pieces. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, mainly our, our failure to save for retirement is not a matter of we just don't know what we would do with the money. It's really a matter of we would really like to spend it now. Maybe I could think about that some other day. Surely saving money for retirement has got to be a good idea no matter what retirement will mean for you. There's nothing it can mean for you that won't be a little better if you can afford things, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not like you, there, there's one kind of retirement where it would be better if I were poor. No, there are no <laughs> kinds of retirement where no matter what you want to do, it will be better if you have money than if you don't, right? right? So, duh, you need to save for it. Maybe what you're asking is, but what, one, what should one do with retirement? Well, actually, I'm, I'm also asking, well, I'm not asking that too, I suppose, but what I was really asking is how... How do you know how much to save? If you, if you are thinking 
30 or 40 years oh, instead yeah. of 20. Crap, I'm not an economist. I'm just the guy in the commercial who tries to get you to believe you need to save. And then you go talk to the people who do the numbers and they figure out for you what you should save. So I, I don't know. But let's ask, all right, so let's talk about what you just asked about what should we do with retirement. Well, um, you know, I wish I could put up a slide right now and show you an interesting result. We did a survey on thousands of people all over the world uh, who were do- participating in an experience sampling survey. And this is done when you, 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 basically your iPhone just dings you randomly during the day and it asks you questions. And the three questions it asks you all the time are, uh, what are you doing? What are you thinking about? And how are you feeling? And you've been trained to answer very quickly on a set of scales. It might ask a few other questions, but it's ringing randomly. And so we collect data and we know what people all over the world are doing, what they're thinking about when they're doing it, and how happy they are when they're thinking and when they're doing. And what do you find? You wouldn't be surprised if I put up graphs showing you that people are extremely happy when they're having sex. It turns out there is a a delay between the ping and the response on the sex (laughs) question. People tend not to actually pull out the iPhone, but very shortly thereafter they pull out and go, I was having sex, it was really great. Okay, so people are happy when they're having sex. Guess what? They're happy when they're with their friends. People really like to eat. People don't like to work very much. They really hate commuting. No news in any of this. One bar on the graph has news. How happy are people when they say, I'm resting? They're as unhappy as when they're working. They're as unhappy as when they're commuting. And if you look deeply into these data, you can see why. When people are doing nothing, their minds wander. And when the mind wanders, if you're blessed, it goes, aren't the grandchildren beautiful? I can't wait for a vacation. But if you're like most of us, it's like, I wonder where that rash came from. I don't know if I, I don't have enough money for retirement. Crap. What did he mean when he said, I looked better than I usually look? (laughs) Right? The mind goes to places that generally make people a little less happy than they are. So what these data suggest is that when people are doing nothing, in our data at least, they're happier when they're doing something they don't even like that much than when they're doing nothing at all. Now, what does that have to do with your question? Because if you ask most people, what would you do if you had all the money you needed in retirement? The answer is some form of nothing. Right. Rest. Put a hammock up. Oh, just get up in the morning with nothing to do. Wrong answer. <laughs> you should, I should eat while having sex, talking to my friends, right? Not do nothing. That's the wrong answer. So I think we do make mistakes when we look forward in the future and try to imagine what would we like if we retired. The odds are pretty good that what you would like is to do something that was not incredibly taxing, but it was just challenging enough to make you continue to feel valued by people you care about. Right. Great answer. I'm going to ask you one last question. And this one shouldn't take you too much by surprise. What do you want to know or discover through your research? Presumably that you you don't yet know. That's right. We were chatting and you said, I'm going to ask you that question. I thought I'm going to think of an answer and I forgot to do it. Oh, no. Well, you've got to come up with one now. Okay. What what would I like to know? Yes. Through my research, what would I like to know? Really, and he, he told me he was going to ask me a stumper, and I would be able to pull some rabbit out of the hat and say something really smart. I have no idea. Well, we can, we can hold the question until I mean, I, I just don't do research that way. I, I think of a cool thing I want to know right now, and I go and I study it, and it leads me to this other amazing thing, and then there's these things I never, questions I didn't even think to ask, and that's the one I'm asking. So I know there are wonderful scientists who plan out 10 years ahead and they know where they're going and there's a goal on the horizon that they've always been moving toward. And like, I'm just not like that. So, so don't try uh, I just want to know how all the experiments that are going on in my lab right now are going to come out by Monday. <laughs> You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go, a podcast from the Aspen Institute. In today's show, Harvard's Dan Gilbert and Gideon Litchfield a former correspondent for The Economist. In the next part of the show, audience members ask questions. Here's the first one. We, when as a society we propose a change of one form or another, um, different people imagine that causing the world to Im- improve or get worse. And often uh, how they view it depends on whether they are conservative or liberal. 
Um, has there been any uh, research to uh, illuminate w whether there's a physiological difference, whether their brains react differently? I mean, whether there's something about their brains that causes them to react differently? Conservatives and liberals? Yes. I could make a joke about you think blank have brains and half the room would laugh no matter which <laughs> blank I feel. You know, I, I, I don't, I wish John Haidt were here. Any chance John's here? No, he's expert on this. I don't know about research on the differences between conservatives and liberals. I mean, there's some research suggesting that conservatives are happier, uh, probably not by a lot, um, but I don't know if there's any profound neural differences between them. I'd be awfully surprised. Yeah, I'd be surprised. Thanks. Who else? Uh, here in the front? So um, I'm always interested, Dan, in your, uh, the, the information that you give about children and happiness because the piece that you always leave off is that children actually provide more meaning. And um, when you say that, that all of our social policies are directed toward making people happier, I wonder if that isn't true for all of our social policies. I wonder if some of our social policies are actually directed toward giving people the opportunity for a more meaningful life. Right. Um, so every reasonable person I know will say, happiness is one important thing in life, but there are others. That's why I'm their favorite punching bag, because I say, no, that's not true. Happiness is the only thing in life. Come on. What about meaning? I said, well, what would happen to you if you didn't have meaning in your life? Oh, I'd be terrible. You mean you'd feel unhappy? Yes. Because it seems to me that all the other things we want, we want because they provide happiness. And meaning is a great source of happiness for a lot of human beings. It's, for many of us, it's as essential, if not more essential, than basic sustenance. So meaning matters. But it matters because of what it produces in us and in other people. Now, with regard to children creating meaning, yes, if you ask parents about how meaningful their lives are, there is sometimes in some studies a small difference between how they respond and people without children. And so you might ask, well, wait, if children bring you meaning and meaning brings you happiness, why aren't parents happy? Er, than non-parents. And the answer is they're not consuming the meaning their children get them, give them very often. In other words, children give much meaning to your life when you think about it, which you will not have much time to do when you have children, right? Every time you stop and think, like when you're tucking the angels into bed and you go like that and you look at them and there's this rush of meaning and this transcendent feeling and it's a great moment of, my experience is it's a great moment of happiness. It also lasts for about 18 seconds every day. The other 20 hours are no, not yet, I told you so, don't touch it. It's hard work, right? So yes, they increase meaning, but meaning is not something that brings you happiness all day. It brings you happiness when you reflect on it, which we don't always have time to do. Isn't there also a problem here with trying to talk about, am I happy? And the question being uh, based in different times. In other words, yes. maybe, the net, maybe there's a net unhappiness during the time that you're braising your kids, or at least for a certain period of that time. But then when you look back on it, you feel incredibly happy yes. because you remember the good bits, because of the meaning. Right. So even saying, am I happy, is also a time-based question. In fact, I think the only reasonable, the only thing scientists can care about is the answer to the question, how happy are you now? Right. So we, you can't ask people, are you happy in life? They don't know. What, are, what were they supposed to do? <clears throat> rerun the whole movie of their lives while they sat there and count the happy moments and divide by the end? How could anyone answer that question accurately? It's impossible to answer. So we, the scientists, must answer it accurately by saying, how happy are you now? How happy are you now? How happy are you now? We keep measuring it, and then we can conclude, this is a man who's got a happy life. Why? Because he's happy all the time. <laughs> so for me, moment-based happiness is the only real data point that's, that, that's worth uh, uh, considering as a scientist. So when you say, I may not be happy if I have kids, but I'll look back on my life and be happy about it, I'll say, that's great. I hope you spend 40 entire years looking back <laughs> on your life. Because if what you did, not that this is true, but if what you did was spent 40 unhappy years so that and I love the phrase, on my deathbed, you could look back and go, wasn't it great? It seems to me that's kind of a dumb time trade-off. <laughs> One really good minute for 40 bad years. 
What about doing it the other way around? 40 years of utter selfish hedonism, and then on your deathbed you go, oh shit. But it was just a minute. <laughs> I don't know, you make up your own mind. Uh, what do you think of uh, futurists? Do they, are they happier than regular people? Futurists being, I mean, that word gets bandied well, about. I mean, we, we live in a world where people make their business predicting the future in business terms, in technological terms. For those of us, or for, for those people who, um, who, who define themselves around their ability to imagine the future, uh, uh, do their minds work differently from regular people, and does that create more or less happiness? You know, I've, I've, made, I've made remarks about futurists before, you know, yes. Futurists, meteorologists, and other shamans. And uh, look, there are people who can predict the future. There are people who can predict the future. The shorter term, the better. The easier it is to do. Some domains easier than others. I don't know of any data that people who are spending their lives trying to predict events that will happen in the future are more or less happy than anyone else. What's interesting, though, is that futurists are almost always not in the business we're talking about today. They're not in the business of figuring out how happy people would be if X happens. They're mainly in the business of trying to figure out what X is. They're the people who get to tell us what's going to happen, right? Because mainly, we don't need them to tell us that if the stock I'm holding goes up, I'll be happy. I knew that part. I want to know if it's going up. But as a psychologist, I'm much more interested in the misprediction of your own happiness if it does. I'd like to link something you said a moment ago about we measure, as scientists, we measure happiness now with some comments at the last session about happiness and spirituality and religion. Yes. And my, my question is, do we know whether people who have um, had religious conversions or, 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 or people who become more spiritual or less, measuring them through time have become more happy or less happy? And is that an indication to uh, the, the broader question that was trying to be asked before. Right. I do not know of data on it, but wouldn't you and I both be incredibly surprised if people who had voluntarily had a conversion experience, right? Because it doesn't just happen one day you wake up that way. Uh, and you're usually, unless it's a cult, you're not forced into it. People who have sought out that kind of change in their lives aren't happier. I, I'd be so surprised. The problem is, it's not an experiment in which people were randomly assigned to, you're going to be in the conversion condition and you're not. So we really can't conclude that the conversion caused the happiness. Uh, question here. So which gives us a bigger squirt of dopamine? A moment of meaning or a moment of pleasure? Just, just say a little bit more about what the pleasure would be. Because if the pleasure is a shot of morphine, which is the direct stimulation of that, I'm going to go with the morphine. You've never seen anybody have a moment of meaning so, go, whoa, right? So but if you mean chocolate, then probably so, meaning. So I want to go back to the children okay. paradigm. Let, let's put that question into the children paradigm because uh, there's a lot going on uh, in terms of the human race, you know, phylogenetics, you know, et cetera in raising children, without them there is no human race. So my question, so let's go back to the dopamine squirt in the context of pleasure versus meaning. Okay, so uh, it's, I'm not quite sure I'm tracking the question, but I think you're asking the right one. I and mean, everybody else here thinks it's a silly one. I think it's the right one. The dopamine squirt, yes. Because what he's talking about is some general indication of the magnitude of your experience of happiness in a moment. If we could measure that magnitude and then measure how mo long the moment lasts, I could answer your question. So you would say something like, you know, when I reflect on the meaning of having children, I do that for about 18 seconds and I get this much dopamine. But if I actually do this other thing, I eat chocolate, I get 27 seconds. We can just do the calculus and say this one will make you happier. I'm not saying you should do it. But this one would make you happier. By definition, it gives you more of that experience over a longer period of time. Is that the question you're asking? Uh, yes, but what oh. you're saying is, is that the answer is in the, the scientific tests. Uh, th that there's no sort of ontological. See, what I find troubling is that 
happiness is a very vague word and you know you you move our lives move along a spectrum between necessity and license if there's too much necessity uh, we're not free if there's too much license we're not free so human being is very different from sort of the pleasure sensors of animals and that's why I wanted to add the factor of meaning to the dopamine squirt yeah. because I'm saying happiness is a very different extremely complicated yeah. uh, a, a, a life lived well yeah. is not you know a, a life of right. utter chocolate all the time I, I, I mean I agree with you in one sense if you're willing to make a few modifications what you're saying is what the Greeks said uh, eudaimonia, it's the life well lived. Uh, Salone said, you can't, tell if a man had a, was ha you can't tell if a man is happy until he's dead. Because only after he's dead can you look at the life he lived. I think we're now getting, we're, <clears throat> alas, we are trapped in using the English language and doing our science. So we're going to get in a whole lot of semantic befuddlement. What I would like to say about this is that there are not different kinds of happiness. There's one thing called happiness. It is the dopamine squirt. It can be induced by different things. So see, eating a bite of chocolate and seeing your grandchild run across the meadow both induce physiologically essentially the same, it's the same physiology that leads to the same experience. What makes human beings unique isn't that they experience a different kind of happiness. It's that we can get happiness from seeing a beautiful piece of art. That beautiful piece of art can do for us what a carrot can do for a horse. Doesn't mean it's a different kind of experience. It just means it's induced by something else. I think that's what we mean when we're talking about this other kind of happiness. We're talking about complicated things that induce it for us. I, I see okay. enough head shaking that I gotta ask why. No, <laughs> 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 yeah. oh, I can't you right. that out of your peripheral vision. That's no, crazy. I like it. Sure, no, we're here did to I, have fun. I, I, did you mean by the dopamine squirt that it has to be dopamine? Because no, I no. veer towards like oxytocin <laughs> since having kids and seeing my wife get off on the oxytocin and trying to cultivate that in myself. <laughs> yeah. That's more my buzz. No I, pills. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm using the phrase dopamine squirt in a very colloquial way, by which I mean those neural activities that produce the experience that we all call, ah, yeah. It's been said that um, the three requirements of happiness are something to do, some, someone to love, and something to look forward to. Do you buy that? Uh, yeah, some of them. I mean, I, I, <laughs> which, which ones don't you buy? <laughs> See, I'm so, I was so tired of living in a world where I and you started sentences with like, it's been said that the requirements for happiness. Like, can you imagine living in a world where it's been said that well, the way to make to water is hydrogen I, I and phrasing. oxygen? I think it's true. I wondered if you thought it was true. I know. But, so I'm with you. I mean, it's been said is true of everything. Of those three things, for which of these do we have data? First, you said something to do. And by that, I mean, I think that relates to my point of not doing nothing, but doing something. So yes, I think there's pretty good data that having something to do is a, uh, a correlate of happiness. The second one was someone to love? Yes. High on the list. I mean, if you said, uh, Rabbi Gilbert, stand on one leg and tell me everything you know about happiness, I can't stand on one leg. Sorry if you're not Jewish, it's an in-joke. If, if, uh, I can't stand on one leg long, but the answer would be relationships. I mean, it's the single best predictor of a person's happiness is the extent and goodness of their relationship, better predicted than their health, certainly better than things like their, their wealth, their gender, their age, etc. So yes, and love, very big in there. The third thing was something to look forward to. Something to look forward to hope and optimism. Yeah, there is no doubt that that's very positively correlated with happiness. Now, if you said, so there's no fourth thing, I go, well, well wait a minute. <laughs> What about chocolate? I mean, there's all, sorts of, there's all sorts of other things. There's all sorts of other things, but I guess I'm going to give you your three. But you made it sound like just these three, and I think there might be several more missing have, from the list. We have time for one last question there. Hi, hi. Well, earlier you, you were talking about planning the future and being happier, being able to plan ahead and, and, and understand where you might be accurately. And then you yourself said with your own research protocol, you don't plan ahead and you follow your own curiosity and passion. Um, and there seems to be a, a tension here between a, a kind of Western 
worldview, maybe Protestant, I don't know, um, uh, and a, maybe an Eastern mode which tries to teach to let go of the future and be here now, et cetera, et cetera, right. et cetera. Uh, your research is presumably predominantly in a Western uh, setting, usually in research studies, etc. What do you think is uh, what's going on in that whole in that whole yeah, tension? Yeah. That's a really great question. I mean, I would say about the research that it's really a different thing we're talking about. There, I'm not trying to figure out how I will feel about anything. I'm just trying to find interesting things to study in my laboratory. And I find the best way for me to do that is not planning too far into the future because data take me places. And I don't want to have a plan that, uh, you know, I want the data to take me where they want to take me. So I don't think that's really what we're talking about. But I think you're asking a great question, which is, so after all the, you know, when I was 17, I read Be Here Now by Ram Dass and said, okay, I'm dropping out of high school, taking acid, and leaving Chicago. And I did. And I just, you know, I, I, this was, this, I thought, finally, a grown-up who understands. <laughs> and so you're kind of asking, okay, now that was, uh, that was 40 years ago. What do you think about Be Here Now? I think it's okay advice. I don't think it's wrong, but I don't think it's right. It's certainly not wrong in the sense I told you about data that, uh, I didn't tell you about data. There are good data showing that when people are in the moment, they tend to be happier, okay? But there are also good data showing that people who are always in the moment lead pretty crappy lives. That's what you call a heroin addict, is always in the moment. It's like, yeah, I don't care about tomorrow. I'm just here right now. I'm just being here now, man. It's what Ram Dass said. Give me more of that. So there's got to be some place between where we make a plan for our life, we think about what would be good and what would be bad, and then we come back to the moment as the plan's being executed. We spend time here and now, but we also use this remarkable gift that evolution has given us to take the long view. We don't want to get stuck in the short view or the long view. I think we want to jump between them. That's why we have both views. Don't you think? We do. We do. So before we... I'm afraid we have to wrap it up. Um, before we... Uh, had the session, Dan told me that his job was to make me as the moderator look good. So I want to thank you for a job very well done. <laughs> My pleasure. Dan Gilbert teaches psychology at Harvard. His book, Stumbling on Happiness, was a New York Times bestseller and earned the Royal Society's General Book Prize for Best Science Book of the Year. Gideon Litchfield is a senior editor at Quartz and previously reported for The Economist. They spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in 2015. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of our public programs. Thanks for joining me.